Welcome to the Modern Producer Secrets Podcast, the first music industry podcast for creatives who want to reach beyond the side hustle, where we show you how to apply the principles of business, mindset, and personal development to create real sustainable success from the inside out. There's been a lot weighing on everyone's mind around the state of the music industry these last few years, as we've all experienced the disastrous roller coaster that has been the pandemic. For many of us, it's forced us to pause and reflect. It also spurred some deeper conversations that I've been dying to dig into genuinely and understand. Suppose you're like me, wondering just how and why the music industry got to the state it is in today, reliant heavily on streaming, social media influence, and the constant struggle for financial independence. In that case, we're going to tear right into it in this extraordinary roundtable episode with several of our community members. Let's get started. Hey everybody, I'm your host, Cameron Bashaw, and today's episode is very special because we're trying something new. I had a burning question on my mind, and I thought I'd invite a bunch of people to an open discussion on whether or not we're relying too much on technology. So I reached out to our Music Producers Alliance Discord community to participate in this discussion. Today we have several people here from the community, and we even have the founder of MPA himself, Adam. Say hi, Adam. How's it going? So what I'm going to do is just go around, introduce everybody today, one at a time. Just give us your bio. Let us know what you're about. Let's start with you, Joey. Hi, how's it going? I'm Joey, also known as Joey the Magician. I'm a DJ and producer from the East Coast, located in Boston. I mainly produce techno and house in the underground circuit around here. And I'm looking to strike it big eventually. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for joining today. Let's move on to Mark. How are you doing today? Doing great. How are you? Doing great, man. So nice. give us a little bit about you. My name's Mark. I go by Without a Chord. is my main brand. I'm a producer, composer, play piano. I have a custom setup when I play, so I bring synths and controllers, and sometimes I build custom setups for certain events. That's awesome. And, and I like to perform out, but I also love making music, so. Hence Without a Chord. That's a great profile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. So let's move on to Tess. How are you doing today? I'm okay. I'm publicly known as Tesla Coil or Violet Wanda. I'm a very private person in general. I created a persona that is separate from my real life persona in order to pursue music. My background is actually very interesting. I started in music back in the 80s and 90s, playing in bands around New York City, jazz, progressive rock, mostly. As I got wow. older, I did computers. I have an Emmy Award for working with transmission of audio and video over the internet for Disney back in the early 2000s. I worked in tech mostly until I got very sick. I turned to music because I knew all this music production stuff. I had been doing it as a hobby and everything else. So that's where I'm at right now. My audiences are primarily video gamers. I have worked in the Final Fantasy community, in the VR chat community, doing DJ shows and stuff like that. But I worked originally, throughout the time I was in tech, I was a DJ in sex clubs, which is very strange. It was an interesting, fun thing. So that's my background. So yeah. And I'm a producer of drum and bass and pretty much anything I want to write at this point. I'm just, whatever I write comes out at this point and I'm just pumping them out these days. That's awesome. I'm glad to have all of you guys on today. So we're going to jump into the topic. And the way that I wanted to format this is we're going to cover this question of, are we relying too much on technology 
from several different perspectives. First, from the music consumption perspective, we'll dive more into the music creation perspective, and then finally end up in the business development perspective. When I talk about music business and the industry practices that are happening and all the shifts compared to other industries, especially, it can get really crazy when we start looking into this. I'm excited to dive into this today. So what I'll do is I'm just going to moderate the discussion and keep it flowing by asking questions. We'll just let everybody go around and weigh in on the topic. Before we begin, I just want to frame this podcast recording and set it in stone. It's 2022, and for most of the world, the internet is no longer something you log on and log off from. You remember those days? It's always on. Our phones are powerful internet-connected computers that have put everything at our fingertips. How many of you have heard the term instant getification? <laughs> Before the internet, the recording industry had its self-coined era. They call it the golden era of recording. And that was primarily when Elvis was alive. He was a world-renowned singer. TV propelled him to an international sensation, even though he never got to tour internationally. Since then, we've had worldwide icons like Nirvana, Metallica, pop idols like Madonna, and they've all become household names with international acclaim in their prime. That era of celebritism is passing. And no new artists are carrying the torches at that scale those brands were able to establish. That doesn't necessarily mean that the music industry is dying. Or does it? I'm curious about each of your outlooks on the industry's future, just kind of looking at it from that perspective. I think that with media, there's several different ages of media. We just exited the electronic age, which is basically radio, TV, vinyl, CDs, that kind of thing, which is more gate-kept. Now we're in the digital age. Instead of an electronic age when there was like, if you wanted to watch your favorite show, it would be on at 5 p.m. You'd wait until you could watch it. Now you can just get it at any time. So people can consume media not only at their own pace, but in their own path. You don't have to wait to watch your favorite thing. Basically where I was going with it is I don't know if the age of the rock star is dead or not. It might be. I think mostly it'll just be a bunch of pockets. And there might be a group of musicians and everybody supports those musicians. And then eventually it's not going to be one sweeping artist that just takes over everything. Yeah, I can agree with that. I think there's definitely a double-edged sword involved with looking at it from a global perspective of the industry. When we look at it from this perspective of, okay, now we're in the era of streaming everything. Nobody really owns anything. I believe Ted Joya had an article talking about the sense of ownership. There was an interview with uh, Rick Beato. They were talking about how the sense of ownership disappeared with the music industry. We don't have physical assets. There's no liner notes. There's no special thing to just flipping open the app and letting the algorithm just feed us what it thinks that we like. What can we do to bring that experience back? Do you think that'll ever come back or do we need to start innovating and heading that direction? I think that we're in that middle of the digital age, move on to a virtual age. So I think that virtual reality or augmented reality type things will start becoming more prevalent, especially as like our technology improves. Uh, I think five or 10 years, IBM had commercial level quantum processors and those will just come along eventually Tess mentioned that she did like virtual djing and final fantasy i think that's going to be a mix of digital and the virtual thing moving forward with the next five ten years we have these virtual concerts 
or virtual clubs and stuff like with nfts having their own ability to create special tokens in virtual worlds musicians are really popular with nfts and stuff like that with some controversy around it depending on if they follow through with promises and stuff and you think you look on twitch they got vtubers so it helps like keeping a little bit of the anonymity of your personal identity versus your music identity that's my take on it so actually i was going to say that like i said early on i was involved a lot with sort of the invention and tuning of a lot of these streaming platform protocols that are used. One of the guys that invented MPEG-4 streaming was a grad student who worked for me. I feel like sometimes I look at the industry now and I go, oh my God, have we created a monster? Because there is such a shift. And same thing with social media. I was involved in a site called Slashdot, which is a proto-social media site, which the threading structure is exactly the same as what Facebook uses now. But at the same time, it's like nuclear power, right? Nuclear weapons are very destructive, but nuclear power is very beneficial. I think it's the same thing. I think it's going to change our world and the tectonic shift in our world is going to be so great that we are going to have to adapt to it. For me, it's been great because I'm a disabled person. I end up working on these things from home and I have my equipment. I have good tech because I know how to use the tech because I worked in it and stuff like that. So I can do a lot with so little now where before I had to get out, I had to meet a lot of people. I had to DJ three times a night in sex clubs. Now I hop online, I perform and I do it with scents and keyboards and everything else. As a DJ, I'm putting on a real show here. And it's great. And I love it because technology has enabled that. But I wouldn't have been able to do that otherwise. And I think as we move into this age, we're going to have to adapt to, number one, the shifting of the power structures in the music industry, because there is a huge shift in the power structure here. I don't think anyone on any side has really figured out where they actually lie in that power structure now. And number two, I think that, look, like, let's face it, what if most of your instruments nowadays anyway in the analog space are, in fact, digital or electronic instruments or electric instruments? Once upon a time, that wasn't true. So, like, you're looking at just the evolution of your instrumentation really at this point to do it in a computer so i don't have to i have nerve damage in my hands i was a phenomenal bassist i can't play Mm. anymore but i can program those bass lines and they're great i know what i'm doing and i can transfer it to what i'm doing in digital space you bring up a good point we brought up several things one the gatekeeping and the evolution of the industry What I want to dive into now is focus more around the music consumption aspect and how people experience music. We've seen the rise and fall of vinyl to tape, tape to CD, CD to MP3, and now streaming is killing off digital sales. So what's the biggest hurdle that music creators are facing these days? Is that music itself is no longer sustainable or was it ever? We can compare and contrast Elvis Presley's story and the state of the recording industry from that golden era to now, it seems to have actually improved quite a bit. There's less gatekeeping now than there used to be. But what does that spell? Does that mean like we're dissolving the empire that the industry used to be? I think one of the biggest issues with us coming to a newer age as you get a lot of copyright strikes, which is part of that gatekeeping thing, where in this age where a lot of musicians can 
rip audio from old sources and stuff like that and remix it into what they want the song to be and it's not just music that's getting ripped it's commercial shows and snippets where you get these copyright strikes it's discouraging to the artists where i think it's a more of an open free like wild west bit of music production and stuff at the moment and those copyright strikes are not beneficial to anyone i think there's money to be made if they came up with a way where you can remix whatever you want without permission but you give 20 percent of the profit you make to the original artist so they're still getting their slice of the pie because no one's not going to be happy if they don't get a little something for something they put out prior yeah so i think in this case you have to draw where the line generally was for the historical record company the historical record company helped you record your music they helped you do all this stuff so they they own the recording copyrights and all this kind of stuff because copyright is really two different things you have the recording and you have the idea the intellectual part of it so one is a physical thing and the other one's the composition so you've got these two things and historically the record companies helped you do those recordings they helped you tour they helped you do all this stuff and i think record companies are struggling right now to figure out where they fit in as well those things can be easily done by collectives of musicians we've now moved the power back into the hands of the artists but the problem with that is is that all these support structures for artists that were done by record companies are now really hard to find you have to build them yourself and I think that's where musicians struggle now. It's a time division factor. Like what you're talking about, yeah, those support structures exist, but now I have to spend the time as an artist away from my music, working to find and employ those structures and get them set up. So every time I have to go publish my song, you might have like a DSP like DistroKid or something, but you still also have to register with copyright office. If you want to have right. copyright protection, you still have to register with ASCAP or BMI and show their administration, this is my body of work, this is where it's going out, and then they track it on your behalf. There's all these different things that are disconnected. There's no centralized way to easily unify everything, which is why the recording labels were the ones that had the labor. They had the employees to be able to spend man hours on this, because unfortunately, it just isn't to the point where it is completely automated. Nobody has it all figured out yet. Right. Let's just take music streaming worldwide. There's statistics and facts that are published by Statista, This was in June 20th this year. No other technological innovation has disrupted the global media and entertainment industry and altered music consumption habits as extensively as streaming has. Over the past few years, the number of music streaming subscribers has soared at a rapid pace. And today, nearly 524 million people listen to their favorite artists or discover new ones via online streaming platforms. The global industry data showed that music streaming revenues have multiplied by more than 28 times in the last decade. That surpasses sales of digital downloads and all physical music formats by a landslide. Not only that, but streaming now also accounts for the lion's share of total music revenues worldwide, highlighting that the future of the industry will likely unfold on demand and online. When you look at those numbers, that's 523.9 million music streaming subscribers, The music streaming revenue worldwide topped 16.9 billion US dollars. The most popular streaming music service is Spotify. We still hear issues where artists 
and producers are putting out music that are struggling to pay a living wage. I also find on the other side of the divide that there are people making a living completely off of their Spotify revenue alone. They're making enough passive income to be able to live on that full time without having to do another job. I kind of want to jump in on that because those statistics, in my opinion, are very skewed. In all honesty, I think that the lion's share of where that revenue is going is the big three, Sony, Warner, and Universal. If you look deeper, I think it was only 30% is made up of the independents, which is your DistroKid, TuneCore, Cobalt, that independent distribution ecosystem. Well, not only that, but you have associations like Merlin or A2IM, which are lumped into that 30% as well. They're a giant representative association. Yeah. So to say that revenue's up in the streaming, it's very skewed because the big three are actually negotiating with these streaming platforms that they actually get paid more than we do as independent artists. They get payouts that are higher than that. There was an article, I think, recently in business music worldwide where they were actually where I, uh, it was who owns TuneCore now. There's another entity uh, that bought TuneCore. Or Believe. Yeah. They had a, an interview with them and they said that actually the big three are now getting together with these tech companies and saying, you can pay the independents a lot less. You put most of your licensing ad revenue dollars into us and just ignore those other guys. So then there's two parts to this conversation. One is from the consumer end, and then one is from the artist. The consumer has literally free access to music, to uh, the entire catalog in the entire world. Whereas, you know, how do you actually monetize that aspect? And then the consumer starts to feel like music is a commodity. It's water. I can have access to it anytime. So when I go onto TikTok and do my little dance and then I get a copyright strike, I'm offended as just a random person dancing to a track. I'm now offended because how dare TikTok say, I don't have the rights to this video. No, you really don't. That's the reason why the copyright law exists. There's two parts to that. The consumer end feeling the devaluation of the copyright and then us on the other end of the spectrum and the labels that are so desperately cling to the exploitation of the underlying copyright. It's just a huge, complex thing that I think before the advent of the internet and the technology that we have today, it was easier to control by these record companies. They were physical products as opposed to this stuff where it's really controlled by the tech now. And it's interesting because there's conversations with TikTok doing their own music discovery thing and essentially acting like a new version of the record label. So that we're in, because I, I think it's in the sense that the floodgates are open and the gatekeepers are no longer relevant. But at the same time, I feel like we're all trying to scramble to figure this out. And I think that there are things to take. And I know nobody's probably ever looked at other industries, or maybe they have, but industries that are not even connected to the arts. For example, the open source computing industry, when we were able to distribute code pretty easily over the internet, open source computing blew up and everybody goes, we can't make money on that. That's not true. How do we make money on that? We made money by looking at other areas of revenue, whether that was going to work for companies that needed our expertise with that software, or whether it was because we knew 
the software inside and out and could help other people learn how to use it. There were all these little revenue opportunities that were in and they, they exploded. Today, online coding schools are a dime a dozen. Online music production schools are a dime a dozen too. There are ways that we're going to have to adapt that whether we want to or not, it's it, like you said, the floodgates are open. We're going there already. We're already heading there. Like we, we should take stock of where we are and figure out what we actually want out of this because we're in a very advantageous position as artists right now on a global scale to say, hey, this is what we all really want from you as record companies. And this is how we can help you. This is how we can figure out where we belong right now. Maybe these are sellable services for you. Maybe you can help us out without taking our copyrights. You know what I mean? And we can figure out how to make this work for all of us. That's true. But you brought up something interesting. I was chatting with a buddy of mine last night and it was just like, we have all these tools to make the music as easily and convenient as possible. But are you actually relating to anybody? If they're struggling to build their brand as an artist or as a producer. They don't know how to communicate or just build this following. And I'm curious from a consumer perspective, is it because maybe as artists, we're so focused on our end of it that we're not really thinking about it from the customer's journey? Has streaming changed how consumers experience music in a way that brought down the value? Or has it encouraged people to pioneer new experiences? Take Travis Scott's virtual performance in Fortnite, for example. There were over 12 million players tuned in in real time for Travis Scott's Fortnite event. That's roughly the same size as the average Monday night football audience. What did you think about that for a second? What's that mass appeal? Where are people really looking for those new experiences? Do you think this is probably the future that we should be looking toward as producers and artists and pushing the industry forward? Or are we missing the mark? I could probably take that because I'm on the forefront of that. I have been doing online performances since the 2000s. I saw it really explode during the pandemic. I think that some people learned I can have the convenience of entertainment for myself from my bedroom or from my living room or wherever my office and people started coming together that way. So I feel like, yes, there's some of that, but I also think there's going to be a rebound in that as well. Travis Scott's thing may have had 12,000 audience, but we're in the wake of a pandemic. And I think true, that people true. are going to want real people again. I think that the entertainment industry, the live entertainment industry will bounce back. And you'll still have virtual stuff and more than you had before the pandemic. I, I really think it'll be there. But just in looking at trends and from being embedded in it, I really think that what's going to happen is more people are going to say, I really miss that hot sweaty club i really missed that <laughs> concert i missed that festival i missed the people absolutely mark did you have something you want to chime in with yeah there's a lot said yeah so i was gonna say about like the shifting of the power like what tess said and what adam was talking about like the labels how the tech is the gatekeeper now and i was just gonna talk about how I think that probably in the future that these streaming services will just become the labels because they're already signing people exclusively. This artist can only be on this streaming platform. That's happened with comedians, podcasts, artists of all kinds almost. That's crazy to think about. People that are working on open source can go and take those jobs, but that's only one part of the problem, which the other part of the problem is the consumer. They're so used to getting free stuff. Because they could just go on YouTube and just watch. It's the largest streaming platform for music. They could just go on there, boom, listen to any song they want. 
and they're not paying for it. They're not like when they used to go in the store, buy a CD, so it's there's this juggle. So the tech companies want their cut because they have the service and where do they get the money from? Like the advertiser. But then they kick back well a little bit to the artist and it's much more complex than Yeah. Than Spotify has been outed in several articles that are still floating around that Again, this is a legend. I can't verify this for a fact, but when they talk about ad-supported, all the free-tier consumers that are on their platform, when they're generating ad revenue, technically that is not tied to revenue that is owed to artists. Ad revenue goes 100% to Spotify. So basically, they created the platform. It's not that we're serving your music to them. It's the fact that we have the platform they're on that's serving the eyeballs ads. Right away, that takes a good chunk of revenue away from the artists that the tech company just says, this is our revenue. This does not go towards supporting artists. That might be how Spotify is able to continually stay afloat. And we've seen figures left and right from them as far as what they do. And to Adam's point, that is where we started to see this divide. The lion's share is going toward the big three. And that's because they've signed contracts. Spotify has signed contracts with all the big three and they basically take advances or guarantees. If you're in the music industry, you should know what a guarantee is. It's like futures. It's like yeah. futures and gas and oil. It's, that's exactly. insane. That blows my mind. I feel like that's so wrong <laughs> in so many levels. It's almost like an ego thing. They're like, oh, we lost all this power. How are we monetizing it? We're going to go in cahoots with these yeah. tech companies and try and sign these contracts. Go join the tech company and work for them. Like Tessa, open source people do. Quit your <laughs> job at the record label. Go work at the tech company and do it from there. Stop trying to squeeze your way in as a middleman. It's ridiculous. I think there is a place for the record companies. I think that the obvious place is those services that were provided before to artists. It's just a renegotiation of terms, yeah. Really, now the power doesn't lie all with them. Now the artist side is worth more because, to be perfectly honest, it actually is worth more than it was before all of this. I'm actually making more money now on music than when I tried the first time to make money off music in the 90s, where the only money I was making off my music then was in bars. You know what I mean? It is a positive change, but it's a shift in the amount. There are less artists making more. There are more artists making less. It's this very weird spot we're in. Yeah. Not all record labels are bad. And I've interviewed James Rhodes of Fixed, and I believe their ethos, the way that they approach building their contracts with the artists that they represent and the artists that they choose to bring on board with their roster is a very holistic approach. Clearly, they've done something right because they started as James representing Cell Dweller, and Cell Dweller became a very well-known artist brand. And as they started to fill out the roster, they're doing it right. They're building their own store. They had a digital storefront right as iTunes was becoming the main way to consume music. And now iTunes MP3 store has gone bye-bye. It's just streaming. Well, they're still running a profitable digital sales store online. I think that's a testament to the power of the brand that they've built and the audience that they're serving. We're here to support our fans. First and foremost, let's give you the option. However you want the music, we can give it to you. They're a good representative. They go all the way back to episode one, and you'll get to hear that interview with James Rhodes and see what they're building. They've since launched other sub-labels like Fix Noir, Fix Neon, and they're killing it. And then, obviously, you can't really compare that to the big three because the big three have been around for so long. They're playing the political game. They're at the top. They're like the governors and the senators. They're playing with other people's pockets, basically.
What Fixed has done is they've joined associations like Merlin. They've joined A2IM. They're being a part of the industry and giving back to them as well. Adam, your label, for example, Technophonic, you can join A2IM. You can join Merlin and be represented by them as an association. And that's where your collective bargaining power gets raised. So I think those are things we have to be smarter about as musicians, artists, producers, and look toward what associations make sense. Let's move into the music creation topic. To set the tone for music production in 2022, the heart of any studio these days is a computer or a laptop. Truthfully, you don't need much else. For most modern music productions, a digital audio workstation is the beating heart of any composition. And I mean that literally. Everything's quantified to a music grid and edited to perfection, or at least the artist's interpretation. Technology has boomed, making it more accessible, convenient, faster, and better. We've overcome the limitations of analog recording equipment, and now we seek it out as an artistic choice to add those imperfections of analog back in. With so many composition tools built into our DAWs or available as plugins to amazingly realistic, sophisticated sampling engines and add-on packs from like TuneTrack Superior Drummer or Spitfire Audio or Orchestral Tools, these digital equivalents make some of the most expensive ideas more affordable than ever in any generation past. But are all of these tools making us lazy? What's happened to songwriting? I would say that songwriting's pretty much still the same. I guess the process, you know, how you're going to write a song, you're going to write the parts, you're going to choose the instruments. And I guess it's just easier and more contained because now I don't need a band. Can you imagine being like Bach or Vivaldi and be like, hopefully all these guys play these notes exactly the way I want them. Because if they make a mistake, then, you know, I got to hear it again. But I still think that the main process is still always going to be the same. We're going to create it in our mind and we just have a faster, better way to get our ideas out. If you're like a single guitarist or a bassist or a drummer, you got to write that part first. You got to think about all the other parts. I guess it's making us all a little bit more aware of all the instruments all the time in the songs. It's making more people composers than ever, which I think is an amazing thing. I don't think that it's making us lazy, although I think that there are lazy musicians. <laughs> but basically, I don't know, there's a few things because there's a lot of different technologies out there and a lot of different things that you can do. And I think that over time, people are going to be able to use these technologies in more of a way to be not impressive, but just to be more like integrated with the technology. If you listen to a lot of, I don't know, techno or something that just builds, you know, every four bars they add a new thing and people are just like assembling these songs live that are not as like super progressive. But with all the different tools that we could use, you could start creating really awesome things and there's already artists out there that have custom instruments and there's people doing like these really cool things. The you know, Max for Live ecosystem and other custom programmable ecosystem things evolve more you're gonna see a lot of crazy setups coming up i think that will be an explosion in that there's a learning curve first you got to know how to make music but you also got to know the technology and like you got to do both and it's going to take longer for these people to get to a certain point whereas if you just had a guitar and a few friends you could make a rock song in like an evening and be like boom like this is it but now if you're gonna use all this technology you have to learn the tech too but i think that if we expose i guess the younger generations to more of these tech things and coding and programming they'll be able to make some really ridiculous stuff <laughs> i was gonna say as an educator and i 
have about five or six protégés around me. I found that the access to make music on a budget is so much easier easier now because most people do have a computer. Maybe it's not great, but they have one. Most people can install Reaper or now Cakewalk, which is free, and start learning how to make music. I think music, it's an art that should be accessible to everybody. And I think the technology has really enabled that to a point where it's amazing. Like I'm seeing young queer kids now who wouldn't have had necessarily the opportunity back then who are now world famous because they made music that's so phenomenal. That's incredible. It's no longer, I need a whole room and a studio and a drum kit and all these keyboards and a room full of guitars. And no, I don't need that anymore. I just need a computer. In some ways that's really special. And I don't think it makes them any less musicians. Somebody said on Twitter the other day, oh, do you think making electronic music makes you any less a musician? No, honestly, I gotta be skilled at just as many things, producing music and writing it on my computer as I did when I played six or seven, eight instruments on a track. Sometimes it takes me just as much time to get the parts perfect, to be honest, too. So it's not really, I think that it's just opened the world and made it easier for people to experience music on their terms. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I think the DAWs are innovative. We all know Ableton or FL Studio, Logic Pro on the Apple ecosystem with the internet i collaborate with a guy in sweden and i collaborate with a guy in france right now it's like what we were saying before where it's hard to get a group of guys together to come together for a band where i have my friends internationally we just swap stuff on google drive or on dropbox back and forth and then we have a song together in a week or two and these programs also have the ability to put stuff in scale for you it opens up a lot of non-traditional scales in the program that you wouldn't think about that can help you be more creative in your tonal selection. YouTube's a good thing to learn, like, mastering techniques. Me, personally, I use Ableton because it's a really intuitive DAW where you get those more traditional DAWs that are representative of a music studio like Reason, which is also a good one, too. The other thing is that some of these DAWs are straight on the browser where you can be both on the DAW at the same time making edits. So like you could in Google Documents when it yeah. first came out. From another aspect, I think DAWs help in schools, but you don't need a whole, everyone needs to go buy a drum kit or a saxophone or a flute to make music. It's a more accessible art departments and schools aren't really funded, but it will allow kids to explore their creative side at a more functional price point without as much practice, but that's what the school's there for, to get feedback. So it allows more accessibility to people. If you play sports, I mess my arm up. I have nerve damage on my right mm. arm. So it's like hard to yet. play. Yeah, it's hard to play an instrument sometimes, but with a dog, if you have some disabilities and stuff like that, you can still be creative and productive and expressive with your music creation. Maybe it's seen as lazy because you're not practicing the piano four to five hours a day, but you're still going to be sitting at the computer on the DAW learning the functionality. Even if you're not like fully learning a scale, you're still going to learn it over time. It's just going to come natural to you.
based on feedback you get from your peers and mentors. You brought up an interesting point. I'm curious if maybe it's just my age, I'm a little bit jaded, but I feel like maybe we've gamified the process of making music so much that the act of making these creative decisions is no different than gambling. Like, are these tools so distracting or is it something else? It's not just Rick Beato. He had a YouTube video that says, was music really better back in the day? And it's his old school rant. But high profile artists are also sharing the same sentiment, that there's this lack of innovation in much of today's music. Or are the innovations in music still? Are they just more nuanced perhaps than general audiences are consciously aware of? I feel like this goes back to your statement. Who has time to spend four to five hours a day practicing and mastering their craft of learning that instrument. I think the, the pace of society maybe has changed beyond that. And maybe music production as an act is just evolving. This is the way it's headed. How do you feel about that, Adam? I still think there's innovation happening all the time. We're not hearing about it, unfortunately. The good thing about technology is that it's made music making more accessible. But the professor from my undergrad degree once said, technology has enabled you to make bad music fast. And that's very true. I think it's the ability that people can express themselves and experience music from videos on TikTok where these young kids are just really doing amazing things with Novation Launchpad or one of those the push things from Ableton doing these amazing things with the technology. There's cool things that are happening in that sense, but then I feel like you're not seeing that as much because with more accessibility becomes more saturation with bad music. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think it really comes down to either you get lucky and the things that go viral sometimes aren't necessarily the best representation of where music is these days. It's just kind of, just kind of the world we have. You either go viral or the people that have the most money make the rules. You can put a lot of ad dollars behind something. Most of the time, the people that have more money make the most mediocre stuff. So I think the innovation is still happening. It's just being less noticed. Maybe it's less noticed because it's more specialized. Like I mentioned in the last episode, about building a better mousetrap, we kept circling around this concept of saturation versus sophistication. The problem is our society is ever evolving. Things are always dynamic and moving. And as the society gets more used to this level, this standard, now we're used to the bar for music being freely accessible. So maybe we just have to elongate our funnel to get people to the paying tiers. And we have to innovate our business practices around that too. Nevertheless, I ran into a mastering engineer colleague who posted the screenshot of a pure mix advertisement on Facebook for a tutorial on using an LA-2A. Now he's oversimplifying the content to make this point provocatively and humorously. If you can't figure out how to use a device that's practically just two knobs, you don't belong in the industry. <laughs> it got me thinking about our modern generation and I responded emotionally to the topic. I'll share my comment here and then I'll pose the actual question, like a productive one to the group. So I replied, I'm not sure what's worse, the fact that someone made this tutorial as a paid piece of content or that people actually need it in their lives. <laughs> my question to the group is, are we in an era where everything moves at such breakneck speeds that we don't have time for experimentation? What happened to the 10,000 hours to become great in your craft? I don't think it's gone away. I think that you know, the more you practice, the more that you become a master at something is never going to go away. 
it's just going to shift the arena. And in this case, yes, it's really stupid that somebody needs a tutorial on a device that is two knobs. But at the same time, the stuff that we use is not just two knobs. It's two knobs within another two knobs and a plug-in here and you move this here and we wire this. So what we're doing in a DAW really has very little to do with those two knobs, except for that we should probably know what those two knobs do, right? A friend of mine who is a death metal drummer from New York City who has played with some pretty big death metal names and he's, he's written books on drumming and everything else. We were talking the other day about how you're defined ultimately or held back by the thing you're weakest in. It got me thinking about that very concept where the thing you're strongest in now may be the thing you're weakest in later because you spend time learning so many different things and going in one direction then learning something so deeply that the thing that you used to be really good at you may be still good at but as compared to the other thing it's now your weakest point so you always are balancing yourself you're always learning you're always going forward and that's what mastery is about and i don't think that ten thousand hours idea really goes away when we're in our daws the fact is the amount of time i've spent in a daw and the amount of time i've spent dj over the past 10 years has trained my ear, has all these things that I do and all these things that I've learned is part of that 10,000 hours. The crap that I put out 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I listen back and sometimes I go, wow, that wasn't so bad. But compared to me now, oh my God, that's horrible. <laughs> it's hard to listen to. But with Dave Audet, when he talks about some of his old remixes, I love his oldest stuff more than his newer stuff. So you have that sort of thing going where it's really hard maybe to listen to your old stuff. And maybe sometimes the rough around the edges was good. Yeah. I think what you're touching on is the concept of opportunity cost. There comes a point where there's so much more that you want to discover what your passion is driving you toward. And you realize, okay, these other things may not be as high priority to me anymore. So I have to weigh the opportunity cost of which one do I pursue more? What's going to benefit me more? Maybe, yeah, yeah you can spend your 10,000 hours perfecting this one thing, but it's no longer as relevant to keep your business moving forward or keep your passion or interested in music theory or... And mastery is not just that one thing. If you are going to master music production, that means that you need to master all the things that go into music production, not just the one or two things that you're really good at. If you have a call to use that other thing you're not very good at, that's going to hold you back. At least do something there. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, at least learn something about the thing you're weakest in, even if it's not your biggest interest, because if it holds you back from doing the big thing that you really want to do, you're going to have to go back and learn it anyway. I think that it's broken up into pillars. Or you can master one or two things at first and then move on to other things to master. It's just there's so many things to do now, like different ways to approach things. And people should be and do experiment more. For example, like a lot of people spend a lot of time on sound design. They have all these awesome sounds, and but they spend no time writing music. They arrange these sounds, but they've never spent the time to write all the notes for all the instruments and stuff. They spent all this time experimenting, playing with sounds. 10,000 hours, and you could pump out preset packs. I think that there's certain skills that you spend that time on to learn. Now, I guess 
If it's this LA-2A, maybe it's a kid that wants to know. Maybe it's someone tiny that has no idea what that tool even is and they need to know how to use it. And that comes back with it being like super accessible too. If it's so accessible, you're gonna have a wide range of people that are really consuming this kind of content. Especially if you're gonna work in a tall, you gotta be able to learn that kind of stuff at some point. Right, somebody said that in order to teach something, you really truly have to understand it. If I can teach something to a child that has no real understanding of how this stuff necessarily works, then I must have a really deep understanding of it because I can simplify it down to that. A lot of times in teaching, it takes a real understanding of how does compression work? We have conversations on our Discord about the technology <laughs> underlying and the math because we're geeks, right? Yeah. And we like that and that's how we are. And I get that feeling for this group. But there are people who don't really understand the physics and how digital signal processing works and how we're affecting a signal in order to make a noise and a sound and things like that. When we start to teach these things to beginners, we actually do have to think about how they work in order to even explain the simplest of terms. And I think the LA-2A thing is really uh, an example of somebody may want to actually know the inner workings of what the circuits did and how the device works. Now I take things like bus compression and stuff for granted, and I know how it works at its lower levels, but my students don't. They really don't know the difference between that and yeah. a multi-band compressor. They just don't. I do find myself explaining these things often. And in explaining them, sometimes I even learn stuff. So I wouldn't necessarily maybe dismiss this video on face value. <laughs> I just wanted to bring it up because it was a great conversation starter on this topic. I can see why. There are a lot of people that come in with a bias toward a certain way or another. And I think you hit it on the head, Tess. Maybe I've heard a different turn of phrase where the best way to, to learn is to teach. If you really want to learn how something works, try to teach it. What that really gets your brain doing is trying to relate it to other people's understanding, how they understand the world. And then by proxy, you learn from their perspective and maybe a better way of how to compare that relativity. Where I want to focus on now is Maybe ask a question specifically to Mark, because I know you're an advocate for AI being used in technology. Yeah. I know you're a big futurist. <laughs> Do you think be. this cycle <laughs> will continue? Will we see AI take us further away from the menial tasks of moving knobs and dials manually to achieve a sound? And we can focus on the highest level of creation, the idea itself? I, I think that the cycle will continue, but I don't think it'll take us away from experimentation. Although mm -hmm. deep learning, you could potentially make an AI model that will learn how you use the DAW. You could just have a track you doing the DAW for however many hours. You could just create a model that will actually use FL or Ableton or whatever as just like you would. I think you could do that for any sort of tool, really. There's just a lot of places that AI can assist people doing things. It also depends on the level of AI, too, because deep learning is a smaller chunk of the bigger set of AI, and it, it does specific tasks, too. I want to make an AI that plays the piano like I do so that I could have it play the synth like I would, or have it help assist me in composing live if I write and compose this thing it'll know that I want this drum beat and it'll just make it happen for me because I've trained it to do that. That project right now is literally ripping and cutting up drums from progressive rock drummers. 
The reason I am doing this ultimately is because I plan on training an AI to be my drummer. Now, not that Alex Cohen isn't a great drummer. He's amazing. Like, he's absolutely incredible. But for me, part of why I got into electronic music was so that I didn't have to rely upon a band. I studied drummers very deeply. And I prefer a human drummer, but I really prefer Neil Peart, and Neil Peart's dead. So, like, <laughs> yeah. so, for me, as I like to pay sort of homage to the artists that I've been affected and learned from, there is a level of keeping their music alive in doing that. But look, I've worked in machine learning and everything else, so I know how all this stuff works. It's going to be an assistive tool. AIs are going to be able to assist human beings in making music, but they will never have the aesthetic of human beings. They may even be at some point sentient. They won't have our aesthetic. There is the 24-hour death metal YouTube channel. It's all AI generated and they trained it off of Archspire. It's constantly generating Archspire wow. music 24-7. It's already at that level. I don't know how much they paid Archspire, but I agree. I want a drummer too, but I'm probably just training it on the drums that I write because I don't want to have to run into that kind of problem. If you train it on some famous drummer, then just got to look at the copyrights and stuff because AI is going through all that right now. I work in IBM research and I deal with acquisition of data just to train AI. There's a lot of law. There's a lot of countries that will sue people. It's in its infancy, but it's growing very rapidly. And that whole space of data is, is a pretty crazy data. That's interesting. Yeah. I guess where I'm coming at it from, I interviewed Jay from Descript a couple episodes back. And we are talking about how they're revolutionizing the podcast and narrative production pipeline. They're virtually removing the manual labor involved with editorial. He said it really well. He said, who really wants to sit there and edit, slice, clips, add fades, and do all this stuff that's hours of manual labor to what can just be done procedurally? Like, yeah, you can, if automation. You can, yeah. The life of a computer, I just want to automate everything. And it's because I want to do the things that I want to do, but have everything else just go smoothly. Because... You can do the same thing so many times. Yeah. But I think Do you that, think you we're know, going too far as artists or producers, though, when we start to have AI generating the artistic content? It's it really depends. Like Tess said, if you're in a band, you got to deal with a band. Yeah, you could be good enough to play with a band and tour with a band. If you go in that position, for me personally, like... I want them to do what I want them to do. I want to hand out the parts and be like, here, you play these. I don't mind getting input. But then I feel like at that point, it's almost a different project. If I'm starting to collaborate and improvise and make creative decisions with the band people, then, you know, I have to sacrifice some things that I may not want. They might inspire me and be like, yeah, that's great. I want to put that in there. There's a reason why musicians do solo projects, right? Like why band members do solo projects because they feel like they've been pushed and pulled. If they don't go and do solo projects, that band ain't going to survive. Yeah. (laughs) I agree. Yeah. To bring it back to Mark's thing, that metal YouTube channel, 24 hour AI generated metal. Yeah. Do we still have any right to call that art? I think that math is art and I think that AI is math and I think music is art. I also think music is math. That's just a different art. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. They needed Artspire to exist for it to even happen. You can't have it without them. Like computers are still going to do what we make them do until they decide to do it on their own. (laughs) Which, to be honest, as much blathering as some people go on about is so far off even now. It's just because they do exactly what is in their 
library of things to do. As you train it, it learns different things to do in different situations. I worked on a project that was essentially training AI to recognize IDs for ID checks and stuff like that. It really does need the examples and it needs a lot of them. Many examples over and over and over again in order for it to learn. We've modeled their learning algorithms after how we learn because we don't know any different. It's still going to do just as we tell it to do and only what we tell it to do. It's not going to necessarily do something that's outside the domain of what we've trained it to do. It's not going to have our aesthetic. Like, it may try and have our aesthetic, but there are certain things humans are going to do and decide in the moment about something that are going to be really imperfect as compared to what an AI would generate. Unless you trained it with imperfections, like, cause it's where AI bias but comes then in. Then your imperfections are the perfection. So yeah. it's, it's a philosophy thing, but It's yeah. gonna reproduce those imperfections. Right, though. exactly, <laughs> that's all it's gonna do. I will say though, I think at the end of the day, regardless of whether art is generated by machines or generated by humans, you still need a human to call it art. Yeah. <laughs> I think the AI, you still have to listen to the final product at the end of the day. Even if you've trained an AI's repeated examples and case studies to learn that final product you're putting it out, it has your personal mark of approval on it. You're saying, this is what I wanted it to sound like. It's just saving you a little bit of hassle so you can get making new art at a faster pace. That's yeah, my take. Absolutely. The advent of the loop or the sample came about. People couldn't really tell the difference. At the end of the day, the consumer just, oh, this sounds cool. It's just like the age old adage, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's around to hear it, did it fall? If the music was generated by AI and people are listening to it, don't know that it was generated by AI, is it still music? Exactly. <laughs> I actually only started music production like a year and a half ago and I've got accepted into Berkeley. And one of the artist development classes is what defines art. My take on it was what type of emotion does that piece of art evoke in you, invoke in others? I think if it evokes an emotional response, which it will, it's art. Art is meant to convey emotions. So, even if it's negative, it, exactly, True. even if it's negative, but it's still art. It's a form of communication. We have spoken a form of communication with English, Chinese, and any language. Mark was saying a uh, coding language is a form of communication between computers, music and art, whether it's physical art, digital art, pictures, sound, TV, movies, it's still a form of conveying emotions or getting emotions out there, which in my opinion defines it as art. So back to what Adam said, if it's art, when it comes from a human, you guys got to make the computer feel emotion and express it, and then that'll be art. <laughs> yeah, that's totally true. Let's move on to the state of the music industry from a business perspective. It's 2022, and there's an app for just about everything. Now, to clarify, I'm talking about any level of business, small or large. So don't feel you're unqualified to share your perspective on it, because everybody here is qualified. <laughs> Whether you're a freelancer or a part of a larger business model, we're all seeking ways to improve our business. Most of us seek that improvement for one of two reasons, buying back the freedom to use our time how we want or making more money, which is often tied back to making the first point. Am I right? <laughs> so let's start with this. Why does the music industry get such a bad reputation for being not a serious career choice? This has been a long running stigma of the industry that has faced as far back as recorded history. 
I think one of the stigmas is that people get trapped in these contracts when they get these guarantees. Once they get signed, they overtake and they can't repay back that amount of money they were fronted. So they're stuck producing music or art that they may not necessarily like. They're obligated to cover the cost of the label company or the recording company. That's where they get stuck in these situations where they're just working to the bone they have no freedom i think that's probably one of the bigger stigmas which you don't see as much nowadays at least in the electronic music scene label companies are not fronting as much money as they used to and they're not signing e-deals for three eps and stuff like that most of it's like a single track or one e or two tracks or so and the money up front is not like it was for house and techno at least from all the labels i've talked to It's really about, in that sense, what do you want? You can sell a track for money or you can sell a track for exposure and fame. How I look at it, at least at this time in my life, is that here lies your favorite artist. They died of exposure. I would rather (laughs) not be famous and I'd rather sell my music for placement where I'm actually going to get paid for my time versus trying to sell it to a record label that's in the EDM world. So it really boils down to what's your desire? What do you want out of making music what do you want out of the music industry for me i want to eat for somebody else that may not be it they may actually have a fair amount of money or they may actually have a trust fund or whatever i'm joking about that in a sense but i think there's a stereotype in that direction too yeah if you have the money it's really just a hobby but I think we're ignoring the other side of the business which is that music placement is probably the biggest place for music right now all this music you hear in your netflix show in your youtube videos all this stuff having somebody look out for your rights in that area and having somebody pay you for your music whether you keep the recording copyright or not it's still on your terms which is great the music industry you can go for that fame and you can try and be the biggest dj in the world or i can play small shows that i'm really comfortable with and sell my money for more money and not be famous and i don't care about being famous we're good there For me, it comes down to the accessibility things. I feel like for the past 100 years, to go into the music industry is a serious choice. Someone's, oh, get a haircut and get a real job. I think that a lot of people think that you need to be on the radio or top charts to like actually make money in the music industry. I feel like that's been the mindset for a long time. There's so many different ways to make money in the music industry. If you were like... I don't know, a live sound engineer, but you didn't tell anybody that they're like, oh, I want to get in the music industry. And someone said, get a real job. They're doing a real job. They're running the mixer board at the venue every night. And like they're in, but if they said, I'm going in the music industry, not, oh, I'm a mixing engineer versus, oh, I want to be an artist. Someone's like, oh, get a real job. I don't know why it's still going on, but I think it's so accessible and so easy. You don't need to find a band. You don't need to get a recording studio, you can literally make a finished product in your house and it's not the end of the world. You can still do that and it shouldn't be so stigmatized, I don't think. I think for me, it comes down to the historical aspect. I love that you referenced George Thorogood and the Destroyers. That song, Get a Haircut and Get a Real Job, is totally poking fun of the industry. Like They were at the height of their career when they recorded that album. They were totally poking fun that they were like poor all the way up until the point where they finally made it big. And this goes back to our concept of the gatekeepers at the time. Historically, we can go all the way back to Elvis, and he is a clear example of being abused by the managers, by the record industry. Those gatekeepers were the ones that were just 
utilizing his talents to make money off of him. There's that stigma, but also just in general, when we look to any sort of entertainment industry figure, that order of celebritism. As consumers, we only look at TV and all these stars are like, man, how'd they get their break? Most people don't understand where the money comes from to even get to the point where they get their big break. And now all of a sudden they're a big household name. For me, it's understanding there is this information gap between the general public and what they understand the industry to be, and then what you can actually do to build a business off of it. So how do you feel about that, Adam? I think society's view, that's still very much prevalent, but I think that's just the way it has been historically. Because of the gatekeepers, very few people could actually do it. But now we're at this interesting crossroads where the gatekeepers are no longer relevant. If you have an internet connection, you can literally start a business. Why that doesn't seem like a viable career option is because now I feel like music is starting to get lumped into the entrepreneur. It stems to more of a societal thing where music creatives are like entrepreneurs in the sense we're visionary. We think about possibilities. And then when you start to think about the future and then how do you make the future in the present, the general people that are conditioned from early age that you grow up and you have to conform to society, you can't light shine, you have to dim your light, you can't be different. I think it's funny in a sense because I think we're all told everybody's special, but you can't be more special than me. The problem is that it's more of a societal thing. I think there was the old way where you got lucky, but now you can make it happen, but you have to have the mentors in the sports system to help you realize your vision. A lot of people aren't really programmed for that. Yeah. You can be creative and expressive with your music, but that's another thing to actually turn it into a viable business. And I think, and I still, have, we all suffer. We, the thing that gets thrown around all the time is imposter syndrome. Who am I to do this? It's more external forces that are making it not a viable career option. But for those that do succeed, as Tesla's making, you don't have to be famous to actually make a living now. I think people still view that as unless you're famous, then you can't have a career, which isn't true. Absolutely. It's the creatives, they're attracted to this interest because they love the act of creating music, that driving factor stops at music creation. So we're inspired to create music, but then we have to learn how to wield that same drive towards building a business and then learning how to operate one successfully. Well, that business acumen is rarely taught in the audio or music world. You pick any recording arts or music degree and they'll teach you hard skills. They won't teach you business. They won't teach you entrepreneurship. You definitely won't find a proper business education and a music recording arts degree. Do you think that should change? Yes and no. Look, the fact is that creatives in many ways, and some of the best ones are going to be really bad at business. To be perfectly honest, I'm really not that good at the business side at all. It's not even a self-worth thing. Like, it's a, I'm autistic and my savant talent is in music and in systems, but in trying to navigate the world of people's business and politics and everything else really doesn't work for me. I can do it. I worked in politics. I was a policy engineer, but I worked in engineering public policy because I saw things as a big system. But when it came to people and individuals, I wasn't very good at dealing with that. And this requires a lot of those skills that some of us don't have. I'm perfectly willing to say I don't have those executive functioning skills, but I think this is where we have failed as an industry to adapt to where we are. Like I was saying before, 
It used to be that the record company handled those things. You've now got a situation in which it's moving back to the artist. And I think that there's a chance for some symbiosis here. In struggling to figure out where we fit, we still fit in the same places. It's just that each side has had to try and figure out how to adapt to parts of their job moving back to each other. So how do you re-exchange that in a way that's equitable rather than taking advantage of an artist is really the question we as an industry, as artists, as record companies, as distributors, as all these people, whether that's digital or physical, need to come together and say, where are we at? What do we each need from each other to keep this industry going? Because none of us are doing that. We're just not talking. We see each side is their relic of the old system, or they took advantage of us before, so we want nothing to do with them now. But they have expertise that we need, and we have the creative that they need. In a world of self-distribution, how do we figure out how they can still stay alive and we can stay alive and we can benefit from all of it? I can see a lot of these ways that can happen. For one, I wish there was a company that offered that sort of service for artists, because right now you're forced to do the business if you want to be an independent artist. I want to be an independent artist. I'm certainly willing to pay for a service that's not bullshit, but there's so much bullshit out there. All I want is somebody to be my personal assistant, essentially. But that's really hard to find because you need a personal assistant who knows the music industry. There's a huge opportunity there. And for the record companies, very specifically, it's where do you fit into this? You fit into this by still offering your expertise that you had that kept the entertainment industry running for so long. You guys are the coordinators. Sell your services as coordinators is really where you should be. Yeah. But that's Handle not the really business and the administrative end. I think the division is so screwed up right now because of that shift that it's going to take a little bit for us to figure out who gets those little bits and pieces of the puzzle, yeah. how they get it and what parts they get. It's going to be a more equitable distribution, I think, when it finally yeah. it comes I out. I think so we're, we're in this phase where we're trying to figure out a solution and nobody quite has the answer yet. It's always in reaction to the toxicity of the way the industry's been heading and all of the negative backlash from it. So when it comes to getting United Masters to set up a platform that can automate a lot of their process, we look at this historically. The way that copyright was set up from the very founding fathers, for the U.S. copyright at least, you had an author and then you had the copyright owner. They understood that the author was the one that created the work. They're the creative mind. But the business really need to be handled by a separate entity. That's why that inherently is built into our copyright system. You have the author of the work, and then you have the publisher of the work. Somebody's going to handle the commerce side. Somebody's going to handle the content creation side. I think we've taken aback to all of the negative, toxic things that have been happening over the last hundred plus years. And we're trying to find some sort of middle ground. This isn't sustainable. We can't go on this way, but we also can't do it completely on our own. As Adam says all the time, a rising tide lifts all ships. We need to find a way to do it better together. Yeah, well, do it yourself doesn't mean do it alone. You have, <laughs> right. to, build, you have right. to build the right team around you. And yeah. any successful business has a team. Eventually, it maybe starts with just one person's vision, but it grows over time. Yeah, I feel the music industry is far more social than other industries as they've automated far too much of their business. You can't call a cellular or internet provider and immediately talk to a live human being. It's 2022 and you can buy new cars 100% online without ever interacting with a human. It's literally shipped to your doorstep. 
What I like about the music industry is that it's still very personable and about relationships. That human element is still crucial to the survival of any music business. However, I feel like we as an industry have been hijacked by the tech industry. And you mentioned that earlier, Tess. Google, Facebook, did we do this to ourselves? And if so, why? How did this come about? Are you saying we as an like, artist yeah. or all human? The whole the music industry has failed to adapt. I heard somewhere that the music business is 20 years behind the rest of the world and other industries in terms of adapting to technology and using it to its advantage. I don't necessarily think it's the tech that is causing the music industry to implode on itself. It's just that you have people that are failing to adapt to it. People that are succeeding are the ones that are adapting, whereas almost two industries happening now. I think the pandemic sort of made that come to a head. Do you want the old music industry or do you want the new music industry? I don't know about you guys, but I want to be in the new music industry because there's more opportunities there. Yeah. Even looking historically all the way back to Capitol Records, just before MP3.com came out and Napster was starting to become a thing, Capitol Records had a team that their job was to go out and look for new innovative ways to grow the music industry business for them. Piracy Now, I think was the book, but they were talking about the guy's job was looking for opportunities. They reached out to this company that was just prior to MP3.com. And he said, hey, we're going to sit and discuss this with the C-suite. But on one end was the tech guys that were looking for research for all these projects. And the other end of the table was the legal team. The C-suite is, oh my God, we love it. This is a cool idea. This is definitely going to revolutionize the music industry. And then, of course, on the opposite end, the legal team's literally telling, we're going to sue you to the ground. This is heresy. You guys are copyright infringing. Why did they have this divide? I feel like this was largely the music industry as a whole. It was much easier to sue for a large sum of money than it was to grant a ton of little licenses that would not generate as much money. With that kind of mentality, you can see why the downfall of the recording industry at large eventually did secede to digital. Obviously, MP3s won out, and now streaming is the main. Instead of fighting it, go with it. The demand for it is there. But instead of just following trends, why can't we innovate? Why can't we be the trendsetter, not the trend follower? It's not that the industry necessarily hasn't grown with it. It's actually grown so fast that people can't keep up with the way it's grown. It's like the Wild West again. And I think that, yes, 20 years behind in terms of the perspective of it. Back then, computer people had that same exact perspective of it's the Wild West. Let's just do all these really cool things and explode. And then everybody jumped on our Internet and we were all going get off my lawn because the Internet had changed so much. As opposed to what it was at the beginning, where we were all net cowboys and professing John Perry Barlow's Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. Right now, the music part of the internet, I think, is in that Wild West stage. And because of that, nobody really knows how it's going to shake out or what it's going to happen or what it's going to do. We're all going... What the hell is going on here? But at the same time, like I said, there's this huge power shift and there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of really cool things happening. There's a lot of really cool technology happening and music is more accessible than ever before. It's really just a matter of figuring out where it's all going to shake out because sooner or later the internet did, right? Everybody knows how it works. The perspective change is Spotify is not a music distribution service. Spotify is self-serve radio. 
And if you think about it like that, like if the artist starts to think about it like that, and I'll tell you something, the record companies already have, because Adam was talking about that exact thing before. The record companies think of Spotify as a radio. That's how they're doing all the advertisements and all that stuff. It's the same as it was when I worked in TV. That's the first thing it reminded me of. They're doing the same thing that record companies did with broadcasters. That's how they're structuring royalties and everything else. All the kickback for the ads goes through the record companies, not through the small artists. And that's radio. And so if you look at Spotify as self-serve radio, it's actually not changed that much has it really. But we're all conditioned to look at it as a distribution service because we're used to the prior paradigm, which is Apple Music. It's just the sort of zeitgeist keeping up with it. And I don't think the musical zeitgeist has really kept up with technology very well. What's fascinating to me is that you had the record labels paying the radio station disc jockeys to play their tunes. And then you had Payola came in and now they're using the old way of doing business, trying to adapt it to the technology and with the possibilities within NFT and blockchain. I think people are trying to hold on to the old way and not innovating in terms of the business of music. That's where I think the music industry is behind. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, my thoughts are it's been brought up a couple of times with the copyright thing, but it's not just in the music industry with copyrights. Part of the issue with taking back some of the control is at the top level of government and the laws. So maybe the copyright law needs to be looked at or revised or have an amendment. So it's not necessarily set in stone as long as we can get at that top level and revise the laws so that we as artists get paid. The labels get paid, the companies advertising get paid and stuff like that. People want to play music when they stream, whether it be music or games or just chatting things. But they have to be selective in their like music choices because of copyright laws. I like to stream sometimes when I DJ sets on Twitch. And then I found out about Mixcloud, where Mixcloud has an agreement with a lot of these label companies where you're not going to get penalized for copyright because as a DJ, you can go on Mixcloud and have your mix. You have a lot of these radio shows from these labels like Defected or Armada that already have their own radio sets on Mixcloud. They don't penalize these DJs that are up and coming to put their music out. Taking back some of the control comes from addressing one of the biggest issues, which is the copyright law. Yeah. Look at it historically. That system was invented way, way back the beginning of the United States as a country. And that was back when the only sort of copyright that existed was on printed sheet music. There's been several technology innovations since then. <laughs> Nobody really dabbles in sheet music anymore. Don't get me wrong. There are still ones that sell sheet music, but... That is such a small, minuscule amount of revenue generated in the global music industry compared to recordings, compared to streaming, compared to broadcast. All these techs have risen up and taken over. So yeah, it definitely needs to be adapted. And here's the thing. This actually takes work. It takes political work. It takes somebody knowing how to lobby. It takes somebody knowing how to potentially pitch it to record companies because 
they're the ones who are going to have the most money to help us. And there are ways to pitch it to them. In this particular case, it's actually getting in the way of the order of everybody making money. Number one, they have to actually at least try to some extent to protect their copyrights. Now, it's not like trademark, though, where they absolutely have to defend it. They can decide, but if you're making a ton of money off of it, it's a bad example to not go after that person or get your artist's money. So when you're playing with samples, it, lately it's become, is it fair use? Is it not fair use? Is it within copyright date? Is it not within copyright date? If I want to use it anyway, what are the chances they'll come after me? I'm a really small artist. The chances are nil, right? So yeah, I can, but if I'm going to sell it anywhere else, it's probably a really bad idea. So if I want to sell it, I better use royalty-free samples. There's these artistic things that you go through with that, but the industry needs to have some of those sort of governors that are holding it back taken off and in order to do that you need number one you need lawyers number two you need money number three you need skilled lobbyists as a lobbyist i know that doesn't necessarily come cheap it's a lot of time you got to get in front of lawmakers you got to help them draft legislation. That's skilled labor that also artists really don't want to do. There are very few artists like me that actually get something from doing political action. Like, we really just want to do art. You know what I mean? And you have that problem too. The fact is that the people who are going to be our biggest allies in this are people that many artists see as enemies. And that's also a problem. They are the ones who can help us the most. I'm not defending or apologizing for the actions of the music industry prior to now, just to make that very clear. The way that record, record companies have taken advantage of artists historically has been just horrendous and evil. And that's an understatement. I think right now we have a little more power on our sides and we also have compelling arguments for how to fix some of these things. So why don't we somehow pitch it to record companies? Why don't we have an association that is dedicated to legislative change that will help artists make money and entertain everybody. I love that you brought that up because especially earlier saying that it's not a smart tactic, but essentially flying under the radar isn't the best business approach saying, hey, this is risk acceptance on my part and just hope that I'll fly by without getting caught. I think Joey brought up a great point earlier that essentially what he was talking about was having statutory rates or these compulsory licensing that can happen automatically on these systems. And it does suck that platforms like YouTube will have a very draconian approach to copyright strikes and not having a more porous system for dealing with individual cases where you can maybe just turn on that monetization split feature the second that something gets flagged as copyrighted. They need to work on it a ton. We need to interact more with the tech industry, interact more with Google and those companies. And Facebook's gotten even more draconian. I wrote a couple of articles on my website. One was called The Post-Capitalism Music Industry, and the other one was Unraveling the Music Industry with Blockchain. I was basically analyzing the state of the industry, where it was heading, and all the nascent potential that blockchain can do for us. Essentially, Spotify is already on the blockchain. They're using that for smart contracts on the back end. You have services like DistroKid, which are also starting to integrate into the blockchain system to more easily automate the process of payouts. There's a whole complicated set of things that we have to do 
on the tech side to get this to be more humanistic and simple and mainstream where a regular artist or a producer can sit down, log into an account and handle their accounting. It's not there yet, but I think the potential is there. We just have to start working together to make sure that the tools become available to us. Instead of letting the tech companies rule the world with their features, right now, a lot of that stuff is getting locked up behind paywalls. And they're becoming the new gatekeepers, unfortunately. When I was looking at that article, I remember reading something about Google basically planting the former head of YouTube in the U.S. Copyright Office. They're the U.S. Copyright Office director. And I can see why. They paid big money for years between 2012 and 2016. They had quadrupled the amount of money that they were funding into lobbying campaigns so that they could seat themselves in the position to be able to influence copyright. I think the music industry definitely needs to head that way. We need to band together and start becoming more involved in the industry that we want to be a part of. I just want to ask one more question. Are we too far behind? Is there anything we can do to take back control now? Or should we start becoming more tech savvy and inventing the next musical experience or collaborating with the tech industry more? I think we are too far behind. I think it's been too far behind. You brought up a point earlier that I didn't even know about, like the music industry was aware of MP3s and being on the internet and they just didn't jump on it because they'd rather sue them to assimilate themselves. <laughs> With the way the technology is right now, there are tons of ways that labels can easily automate collecting streaming royalties and everything. I'm talking, you could have a blockchain, you could have sensors in every venue, and anytime anything is played by any artist, it's recorded on the blockchain, and then boom, exactly when it was played, all of this automation of revenue splits can just happen. There's just so much room for innovation in this industry, and especially on the business side. And I'm not business savvy, but I understand the system enough. The streaming and the copyright thing, that could all be automated too. Before AI, they could detect if a song was being played on YouTube or whatever. And with AI, it's just gonna make it better. If somebody's talking over the stream, they could have AI that just takes out their voice, checks to see what song's playing, automate that payment system. And technology has advanced the artistry. It's infiltrated the art side, but it hasn't really gone that far in the business side. It's very apparent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Say the least. <laughs> in a large way, they're developing the sort of coping mechanisms that they need in the modern world is really, it's a form of conservatism in a sense that they don't want the industry to change or their power structure to be diminished. They are fighting to keep that power structure, even though it's actually harming the industry as a whole and themselves. That's the compelling argument that you need to make. We need a more equitable arrangement between artists and companies and the corporate structures that help us out. We need to recognize and actually appreciate those structures in one sense, but we also need to be very critical of how we've been treated by those structures in the past because they did hold a very important place. Many people are trying to figure out how they're going to do that now. We need to keep the opportunity and the, lose the gatekeeping, but still keep the, the infrastructure in a sense, I think is really what we're looking at for the future. Yeah, because one of the things that I think with crypto and like blockchain also being brought up a lot is you could make copyrights a type of blockchain and automate it that way as well. And that will, like Mark was saying, allow people to divvy up who gets what 
percentage of the pie, essentially, which can be a bit hard to track. Originally, I started out as an accountant for 10 years, so I understand oh, a little wow. bit more, a <laughs> little bit of, little bit more of the business side of things. I think that. In general, the industry is a little hesitant to release control. But what's mine is mine. Where if you have a different copyright, everyone gets a little bit of the pie and incorporate some of the newer technologies coming up, like crypto, incorporating that into the copyright law. There's a saying where it's like any exposure is good, whether it's bad or good, <laughs> which I think is wrong because you get turned off when these label companies go after people and copyright strike them. They'll probably see a small dip in revenue because of that. If you listen to a remix by someone, I listen to a lot of stuff on SoundCloud more than Spotify or anything. And it's a lot less up there with remixes and mashups. But I listen to these mashups and remixes and I'm like, what did the original songs come? So it's kind of like free advertising. And then yeah. these companies go after these artists that do that and force them to take your music down. It's like, what are you doing? You're, you're not helping the spread of your music. You're yeah. actually hurting your re revenue, even if you don't see that. It's a long-term vision type of thing. The, a lot of lawmakers and stuff only have a short-term vision, in my opinion. But I also am part of a fair amount of producing groups or have talked to A&Rs and different artists. And they're like, oh yeah, I have 50 to 100 gigs of songs that I can't use. A lot of that is because it's copyrighted music and they have to get clearances for the samples where with the change in the laws and the incorporation of newer technologies as we come along, I think that everyone will get their share of the pie. Some of these artists on SoundCloud would never get signed just because of the style of the music and maybe the production quality is not the greatest. Yeah, I think you brought up a beautiful point. Let me just paint a picture really quick. I've never heard the original song for, oh God, what was that movie with um, Lady Gaga and the other guy that A Star Is Born? So the main song that they sung was originally like Barbara Streisand or even before her. That was a remake back then. I've never heard the original. But if we can learn how to harness the power of smart contracts on the blockchain, essentially we can unlock features that our current legal system and the current copyright system and how commerce has to work is far too just manual to do this. But the blockchain would enable. The blockchain would enable the original copyright holder, the originator of that piece of music, can get a kickback for that automatically. They don't have to do any updating because it's all tied back to the original contract. Mixcloud and all these platforms should be clamoring at the bit to try to implement blockchain solutions for payouts because one, yeah, you're leaving money on the table. Who doesn't want to get a payday for having their song remixed a billion times? That'd be amazing. <laughs> right, and the other thing, about that is a set. Don't piss off your DJs. Don't piss <laughs> off your DJs. Look, your DJs want to play your music right now. The biggest place most people hear new music from, if they're really into music, is they're checking out some of their favorite DJs. That's how it's always been. DJs are always telling you what they think are cool. If they don't think your music is cool, then your music ain't getting played. You could pay radio stations, but really, who listens to the radio anymore? Really, who <laughs> listens to the radio anymore? We were saying before, tapping into online communities. How do people hear new music in Final Fantasy? All the, the hundreds of DJs that are playing in Final Fantasy right now, people are hearing my music and they're going and playing our music on Spotify or on whatever. There's so many of these small audiences who are like, oh, I love that song. Oh, Trapezoid by Ill Gates. Yeah. So <laughs> now everybody knows Trapezoid. The one thing this has done is made your community DJ a lot more important than they used to be, which is really cool, to be honest. Your community DJs are going to be the ones playing your music. 
fixed monster yep. cat all those yep. the newer record companies that are doing well they all yep. knew it at the beginning yep. and that's why monster cat and the fixed licenses when they released music you can replay our music anywhere like we're not going to come after you for it it's part of the license they knew it they knew it when they did it yeah, they're just as important of an influencer these days as any YouTuber. Look at Fortnite, when Travis Scott played. How many of those 12 million Fortnite players had never heard of Travis Scott before then? They're so young, they don't probably even follow that genre until he did that show. Mark, did right. you have something to say on that? Oh yeah, with the blockchain. A lot of people are like way too concentrated on NFTs and crypto when blockchain by itself as a technology has so many uses, especially in this case for recording or getting down on a ledger every transaction, every time a song's been played. If you use AI Assistant in front of that, you can really get a way better idea than however they're doing it now. I think that earlier you mentioned something about sensors and being able to track that in yeah. live venues. How unfair is this? We literally are getting served ads because our phones are always listening to our voices like the other night, I was talking with my wife about a new Samsung TV, and we're talking in the room. Our phones, like, they're on the table, and yet within minutes, we're getting served ads on Facebook, on Google Search, and yeah. those ads are all like, hey, check out the latest Samsung TV. Instead of having a sensor, this should be pretty simple to have the music industry start integrating that same function. If you are at a public venue, you can use geofencing to figure out this yeah. place is listed on Google Maps as a business. If there's enough people with their phones sensing this song being played, yeah. that will alert ASCAP or BMI to then make sure this business is registered. If they're not, just send them, hey, just a reminder, you should be registered with ASCAP or BMI to be able to pay yeah. out. We have a blanket fee. And that generates revenue that is probably left on the table otherwise. How else would yeah. that business know that it has to pay royalties for publicly playing music in a venue? <laughs> yeah, I know. That's a great idea. Just use people's phones. I think that artists need to team up with the business side and they really need to go into government and go into tech. It does feel that it has been hijacked by tech because they have all the money now from all of it, basically. For ad revenue because of their sites, et cetera, et cetera. And the business side is just trying to go in by themselves and try and take a cut from it. We should all be teaming up and, and definitely creating something innovative getting into the government, changing those laws, and, and getting into the tech and getting it back. <laughs> yeah. or, or have them create us the solutions that would help out the business side and then in turn the artist side. Absolutely. Hey guys, I really want to take a moment to appreciate and just say thank you to each of you guys here. What I'd like to do is just go to each one of you really quick and drop any links to where you'd like to send people if they want to check out your stuff. Let's start with you, Joey. You can catch me on SoundCloud at Joey the Magician. You can catch me on Instagram at Joey the Magician. My website's in building mode right now. I'm actually working with my other group as a control and test user for their website building service that will come along and will be posted on Instagram at some point. Awesome. I'm excited. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> Thanks. How about you, Mark? Where should they go to find you? Find me at withoutacore.bandcamp.com. It's the best, but... Yeah, I'm on all the streaming services. I'm on SoundCloud, so search without a cord on SoundCloud and Instagram. Awesome. How about you, Tess? Where should they go to find you? The easiest thing for all my links is just my link tree, which is a link tree Violet Wanda. So that's just how you think it would be spelled, Violet Wanda. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Y'all have everybody's uh, links down in the show notes too. So if you lost it, can't find it, just check out the credits below this episode. Last but not least, Adam, dude, thank you so much for being a host to 
all that we do on the Modern Producer Secrets podcast and our sister group, which is the Music Producer Alliance. And that's actually where all of you guys are from. I invited from our Discord community. So if you haven't already joined, go to our Discord link below and come join the community. See what's going on. We're pretty active. And any last thoughts, Adam? No, it was a great session. Glad everybody could make it. And yeah, join our Discord. Continue the conversation there. Join in. Come talk about these things. It's a mastermind for a reason. And it's totally free. Sharing ideas is part of how we grow as producers. So come in and hang out with us. Thank you so much for sticking around at the end of this episode. I want this podcast to continue growing, but I need your help. Your input helps us understand you better to provide the resources you need to grow as a music producer. So please take a moment to rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast app. It won't just help us, it will help the fellow producers and music industry professionals know whether or not this podcast is for them. What we discussed in this episode is precisely why Adam founded the Music Producers Alliance. We're committed to pushing the industry forward. The mentorship program is designed to accelerate the growth of those passionate individuals committed to building themselves a sustainable, forward-thinking career. If you're that passionate individual, the best way to jump in is to book a free strategy session by going to musicproducersalliance.com forward slash apply. If you're just starting to dip your toes in music creation and not sure where you fit into the music industry, come join our community discord. This podcast is brought to you by the Music Producers Alliance. Visit musicproducersalliance.com or find the link in the show notes to get started.